This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. Welcome to the Llama Podcast. I'm Peter Bowes and Llama, Live Long and Master Aging is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Today my guest is Eric Verdin, a biologist and physician who recently joined the Buck Institute for Research on Aging as its CEO and president. It's America's largest and first freestanding research institute focused solely on the connection between aging and chronic disease. A native of Belgium, Eric Verdin received his Doctorate of Medicine from the University of Liège, but he spent much of his career in the United States, exploring the role of metabolism and diet in ageing and the diseases associated with old age. Before moving to the Buck Institute, Dr Verdin led a team of scientists at the Gladstone Institutes in San Francisco, which is where we met. Eric Verdin, welcome to the Llama Podcast. It's great to see you. Same here. What brought you to the United States? So I, I was trained in, in medicine in, in, in Belgium, and uh, I was always interested in a career in science. And actually, it was on the advice of a family friend who had actually conducted most of his career in biomedical research in the U.S. that I first applied for a job at Harvard Medical School, where I was for four years and uh, there was no turning back. I think the, the U.S. has provided me with an incredibly rich and supportive environment to conduct a career in medical research. And Is it supportive of the kind of science that you are looking at and you are intensely interested in the aging process and human longevity? Yes, absolutely. And uh, uh, there's uh, uh, the science of aging is relatively new. It is actually less than 20 years old. And uh, at least molecular aging, trying to understand in, in molecular detail the details, the mechanism of how one ages and how to uh, combat it. And the U.S. has actually been playing a critical role at the forefront of this whole field, and particularly actually the Bay Area here in San Francisco really contains one of the largest contingent of uh, anti-aging uh, scientists. And as you were developing in terms of your career, you were educated initially in Belgium and then you say here in the United States. Um, have there been times in your life that particularly focused you on the issue of longevity and lifespan and health span? Like all of the, the best things in life, I think it was there was an element of predictability and an element of serendipity. I think the the predictivity is that as one gets old, this becomes a subject of interest to most people, trying to see how one can live not only longer but better. And uh, the, the serendipity was my work. We ended up through our work on HIV and ended up identifying and characterizing a family of proteins that appear to be playing a critical role in aging. And so this is uh, the two together basically made an irresistible mix, and I've, uh, for the last uh, 16 years, I've devoted a significant part of our research effort to really understand the role of uh, the molecular mechanism of aging. Well, let's get into some of the detail. You mentioned this family of proteins. Uh, Tell me what they are and how they function. So these proteins are called the sirtuins. Their role in aging actually was first identified by a colleague and a friend at uh, at MIT in Boston, uh, Lenny Garante, 
who identified them in the context of uh, an aging model in yeast. Uh, when we saw this work, we actually went and looked into the mouse and human genome, which had become available around 2000, to see if they were equivalent of these, this protein that actually was protective against aging in yeast, and were able to identify some of them, clone them, and then started studying them. And so this is how our foray in aging started. If you go back to basic biology of life, we have DNA. We think about it as the, the book that encodes the information, the code. The proteins are actually our, the tools that the cells use to do everything that we do. And so some of these are enzymes that help us, help us digest. A good example of a protein is hemoglobin, which carries oxygen in our blood. And so this group of proteins, the sirtuins, are actually appear to be inducing a protective response in our cells. So when they got, become activated, our cells become resistant to a number of stresses. And that you could broadly describe as the aging process. At a cellular level, that's what's happening. Exactly. Actually, one uh, so the aging process is... Uh, is the slow accumulation of damage in our cells. And this damage can take many forms. It can be mutations in our DNA. Uh, it can be misfolding of proteins. So these proteins that we were just talking about, these enzymes sometimes can misfold and therefore thereby lose their activities. So there are, we have, for example, systems that will allow our cells to recognize misfolded enzymes and to eliminate them. So there are many, many different monitoring systems in our cells that ensure that everything is functioning properly and when things get damaged to repair them and to fix them. So think about it, uh, the example of a car which will rust under the effect of oxygen in the air. If you bring it to the garage regularly, you will repair and fix it. So an old car can actually be maintained for 50 years and look new as long as you keep fixing it. It's the same in terms of our organism. We have a number of repair systems that allow us to to actually remain essentially unchanged for most of our lives. And so something happens towards the end, which we think might be the accumulation of more irreversible damage or a loss of repair. We also, in the last uh, five years, have developed uh, another aspect, uh, which is related to a metabolite so this, uh, that is generated during the uh, fasting process. So when, when, when you or I fast, um, your metabolism changes uh, dramatically. That is, instead of uh, burning carbohydrate, which is what we mostly burn when we uh, eating, your body starts uh, burning or consuming the fat from your fat tissues. And um, so this has happened during the fasting response. And a big fraction of these lipids, uh, this fat, come to your liver uh, where they are transformed into a chemical called uh, ketone bodies. And these ketone bodies are then actually used very efficiently by your brain as a source of energy and also by some other organs, including your heart. And we've been interested in trying to understand how do, do these uh, metabolites, the ketone bodies, uh, work and um, do actually do they give you a protective response. And one evidence that we have is, for example, they protect uh, the organism against oxidative stress. So they are not involved in repair, but they protect your body from uh, some of the manifestations of aging. So I think we are working on... On these ketone bodies, we're also trying to generate new ketone body-like substances 
that we can actually ingest. And uh, we actually have recently uh, some generated some new ones that seem to be very promising. So that's uh, one another way that the field of aging is working is trying to identify some small molecules, drugs, that might actually confer some of the same benefits as aging. So what you're saying is drugs that would mimic the effect of fasting. So you yes. could presumably stick to a normal but sensible diet, take these drugs and benefit from what would be the effect of, of fasting and, and producing ketone bodies, which is essentially running on fat as opposed to sugar. Exactly, exactly. No, since this is clearly, uh, uh, for those of us who are not you know, willing or, or interested in uh, learning the discipline of fasting, uh, there might be alternatives in the future. And actually, uh, many of us are working on these, uh, what we call calorie restriction mimetic or fast mimetic uh, type, type of drugs. And just to delve a little deeper, ketone bodies are, are often credited with that sort of sense of euphoria almost that people feel while they're fasting people feel more productive in the office or or at home or whatever they're doing the brain seems to be working quicker they've got maybe a slightly better memory do we understand why that happens well not completely but because fasting or calorie restriction is a very complex reorganization of your whole metabolism but that notwithstanding, there's growing evidence that the ketone body uh, utilization by the brain changes the, the chemistry, uh, the metabolism of uh, your neurons, your brain cells. And we have, uh, for example, obtained re- recently some evidence that uh, ketone bodies might actually be protective against Alzheimer's disease uh, in, in mouse models. So there's going to be a lot of interest now to testing this uh, in humans. But we've seen using either a ketogenic diet, this is a type of a fasting diet that generates high levels of ketones, or using the, the ketone body mimetics that I alluded to earlier. In both cases, we see dramatic changes in electrical activity in the brain. So we don't really know how, how this works, but uh, these metabolites clearly have a profound effect on the brain. So one of the most powerful things that any of us can do to change what's happening at a cellular level, to have some sort of control, is by modifying or changing our diet. And fasting is perhaps number one in that list of things that we can do. If you fast, the the number of changes, again, at a cellular level, are considerable. Yes, actually, there are two today, two major, uh, not only fasting, but exercise. And uh, both of these interventions coming from the outside if you look at them at the first level, are actually mild stresses. And one of the ideas that underlies all of this work is that these mild stresses induce in the organism, in our cells and in our whole body, a protective adaptative response. And this adaptative response, for example, fixing your proteins, repairing your DNA, might actually be what is causing the prolongation of lifespan. So we're deliberately stressing our bodies to to initiate a positive or potentially long-term positive response. Yes, that's exactly the mechanism. And actually, I can, if I can add another way in which we think we might be stressing our, our, our bodies is eating vegetables. There's also lots of evidence that eating vegetables, uh, a, a vegetable-rich diet is protective against uh, disease of aging and might increase longevity. The mechanism there, again, seems to be a mild stress. Many of the vegetables that we eat contain 
chemicals that the plants have evolved to avoid being eaten. And many of these compounds are actually mildly toxic and might induce, again, a protective response in our organism. So we're, without actually thinking, understanding what we're doing, just the process of eating vegetables can, can initiate this uh, potentially long-term positive response. Exactly. And, you know, you probably have heard of the adage that uh, we should hear, you should be eating vegetables of many different colors. It turns out that many of these colored compounds actually are the ones that induce uh, these protective responses. I think I once read something that you said that if you really want to extend life and live longer, you just don't eat. Well, maybe that's putting it to an extreme, but there is something in that, isn't there? Yes, I think of, of all the, there's been a long, long-standing interest uh, in humans on how to increase longevity, I think, all the way back to 2,000 years ago. And uh, people were already intrigued with uh, immortality and living longer or living better. And uh, there's, in 1930, actually, there was a, a scientist made a critical experiment, a critical observation. He took a group of rats and placed them on what we call calorie restriction, which is the decrease in the amount of food that was available to these rats and found that they were actually living longer. And these studies generated, again, you know, almost 100 years ago, have been replicated in almost every single organism in which they've been tested. So uh, decreasing the amount of uh, food intake is associated with an increase in lifespan and and not only increased longevity, but uh, decrease in the so-called disease associated with aging. And uh, I think this fasting in some way represents a a more extreme version of the of calorie restriction and so there's been a lot of interest in trying to see different modalities of calorie restriction of which fasting is one so problem with calorie restriction is that it's actually very hard to implement and to sustain and so the idea that one can replace or mimic a calorie restriction type of diet by episodic fasting is one of the areas that interests a lot of uh, my colleagues and myself. Now, you talk about fasting. Uh, there's a huge amount of interest in, in fasting at the moment. I think uh, the, the 5-2 diet has become very popular, especially in the UK, but certainly here in the States as well. But other types of fasting as well. Some people have a, a 23-1 fast, where they fast for 23 hours of the day and, and just eat during a one-hour window. Others will fast for, for 36 hours or or for 60 hours and then it becomes a bit confusing well what is the best kind of fast to produce the most positive response so you know there are there are three types of of fasting one is called uh, the intermittent fasting and this is usually people who will fast every other day or will fast two days a week there's the periodic fasting which is longer periods of fasting four or five days but administered at a much less frequent basis every two or three months. And finally, there's uh, uh, another one which is called a time-restricted feeding, which means that one eats only for a certain fraction of the time. Now, what's important to realize is all three of these forms of uh, fasting have been shown to have beneficial effects in a variety of uh, animal models, and uh, this includes mice and so on. What we don't know today is which ones actually are uh, provide the, the maximum benefits for humans. And I think we're right at this critical period where I think one should probably do what feels good. If you're uh, doing a, a form of uh, fasting and uh, you're actually not feeling better or stronger, 
after trying for a few months, you should probably consider doing something else. Uh, one key thing as a physician, uh, as a uh, practicing physician, is the idea that uh, we should first do no harm. And there's some clear evidence in, in animal models that actually some forms of fasting might actually not do you better. So I think the caution is, is still of, of the highest order for me at this point because we, we have not studied this uh, systematically in humans. But... Um, Thankfully, a lot of studies are actually ongoing right now, and so in the next few years, we will we will know better. It's clear that some forms of fasting are unlikely to to hurt you, but uh, I think I would recommend against trying to do in anything extreme at this point. And um, of course, we should say that for certain people, fasting clearly isn't a good idea for pregnant women, people suffering from diabetes, and, and a number of conditions. Yes, there's clearly one of the issue associated with fasting is the risk of malnutrition. These interventions should obviously not be done in children. Or there's also a clear worry about uh, older people who already have lost uh, significant body mass that uh, fasting might actually be deleterious. And we've seen this in animal models. There are clearly age-specific effects and uh, in, in dramatic age differences in terms of the consequences of different diets. You mentioned fast mimicking and also periodic fasting, which is something we we both uh, at a personal level experience or what do you think well w- one thing that's clear is that uh, once you embark on a on a fasting program it generally is hard at the beginning and you will experience uh, some significant challenges but uh, one of the remarkable thing is that when as one tries uh, you can see a clear adaptive response in, in the fact that it becomes easier and easier and um, this is also true by the way for uh, calorie restriction I've tried a number of these diets. It's very hard to say they all have their pluses and minuses and challenges. I think they, many of them require commitment. One thing that we also do not know is you know, whether these uh, diets actually work in combination with exercise, whether uh, you might actually stress yourself too much. So these are, uh, I try to err on the side of uh, trying to maintain a, a good body weight and exercising regularly and fasting on occasion. And I think one of the difficulties is, certainly for people in your position and mine as well, that is looking at the long term because there are really no studies. And it's very difficult to organize a study, to fund a study, to get the people involved, to commit to something that would frankly take decades to produce any meaningful data. And I think that's always going to be the case, isn't it? Yes, there's a clear uh, recognition in the field of aging that... uh First, that the the ideal would be to conduct a clinical trial for aging, but very quickly one realizes that uh, this might be a 40-year clinical trial, which is practically unfeasible, both for financial and and time reasons. So uh, there's a lot of effort in the field of trying to identify what we call surrogate markers of aging, that is, uh, markers in your blood or or functional markers that allow one to predict uh, your lifespan. And I think uh, we and many other groups are hard at work on this and trying to identify these. Once we have these markers, we will be able to generate clinical trials, which might be of a shorter duration, maybe two to five years. And uh, those should allow one to actually test very systematically these modifications. And And what are the key markers that you're looking at? Well, there are key markers that we know are predictors of uh, the disease associated with aging. For example, we know your glucose level, uh, fasting glucose level. We know your blood pressure, your IGF-1 levels, 
and actually also functional markers, which are, uh, for example, your gait speed, how fast you're walking, is one of the strongest predictors of lifespan. And, it, and is the theory the faster you walk that potentially the longer you will live? Exactly. It sounds exactly. simplistic. Yes. Your VO2 max, for those of you who exercise, you will recognize this term. This is your maximum aerobic capacity. That is how fit you are in terms of exercise. It's also a very strong marker of lifespan. So the, the goal in the short term will be to conduct uh, systematic clinical trials using some of these interventions and trying to see if we can actually alter these these parameters. I, should I, say, I, should I, I was going to say, just, just going back on, because you got me thinking about it, yes. just the walking quickly yes. thing. Is it because uh, if an individual walks quickly because they are capable of walking fast, or is it deeper than that, that they have a, a motivation to walk faster? It's a, this is what the power of these types of uh, markers uh, comes into into play is the, the, they integrate a large number of variables which include your balance, includes your muscle strength, includes your maximum aerobic capacity, uh, includes your muscle mass, your weight, and so on. So they really are integrating how, how, how well you function essentially, and the same goes for grip strength. You know how. How strong is your grip? And uh, It's a combination of factors. Yes, absolutely. Uh, ju- just as aging is. That yes. If you look at aging, let's say, as a disease, it is simply a, a combination of all of the things that are likely to hit us over a certain age, or at least as we, we, we gradually get older, that we're talking about a number of different conditions that collectively are aging. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And that's why we need to look at things to combat aging, not as a, a single factor, but a, again, a, a, as a combination of things that we can do to ourselves, whether it's diet or exercise, to try to just slow down that clock. Very clearly. So there's, you know, there's clear evidence from uh, studies of humans who live the longest that uh, it is going to be taking a whole series of, of uh, interventions. That, that Living longer is not just the results of just fasting. If you're fasting and you're smoking on the side, clearly that's not. That might help with the consequence of the smoking, but that that will not be sufficient. And so the, the population who live the longest have a, a balanced diet. They have a strong community. They remain physically active. They do not smoke, and so on. So, and the same goes for fasting. I think I'm I'm trying to be very careful in terms of the prediction of what hap- might happen for one single modification, such as fasting, and to expect everything from it is most likely unrealistic. But it's certainly one clear thing that you can modify today in your in your lifestyle that is likely to have some positive consequences and i should say if you going back to your question which of the forms of fasting is probably the best i think there's um, there's one that I forgot to mention in your previous question, which I think is probably the most important is the what I call the time restricted feeding this idea that uh, eating frequent meals throughout the day is probably not the way to go. And we know from animal studies that restricting the the hours during which you actually eat to eight hours or more during the day is probably the most important thing that you can do today. And for example, that means you know, having a long, at least one fast per day uh, of 16 hours or 12 to 16 hours. And that really comes into the, the phrase that you used before about fast mimicking, that we're not necessarily on a total fast. I think people hear the word fast and they think just no food for a period of time. That's not necessarily necessary to get the benefits, the known benefits of fasting. You can take in a number of calories, maybe 
500, 700 calories a day over a period of time and still reap the rewards of fasting as we know it. Yes, there, there's clear evidence that animals, for example, even on those so-called high-fat diet, which is an experimental diet that we use in the laboratory to mimic the so, so-called Western diet, that if you are feeding this type of diet to animals, but you are restricting their access to food for eight hours a day, they actually do not suffer any untoward consequences of this diet. Whereas if you allow the diet to be present the whole day, with the animal eating the same amount, uh, you see all the complications of the so-called Western diet, which is high blood pressure, diabetes, and so on. So I think, for example, avoiding that uh, late uh, nightcap of a glass of milk and a cookie could be something already very important. And uh, the idea that you know one should not eat in between meals and uh, not eat, for example, after 8 o'clock at night until the next morning, that's already a fast. And uh, you will likely uh, reap some benefits just from that type of fasting. And what you're describing, and I've heard this many times, you're describing a scenario that perhaps as children we are told to adhere to, to not eat between your meals, not to eat late at night, to have that, as you've, I think you referred to it, as sort of sensible, relatively minimalist diet and plenty of exercise. It's kind of an old-fashioned lifestyle that you're describing. Yes, in some way, I think you, uh, what we are doing in many ways is rediscovering something that uh, uh, our forebears had knew. And the idea that uh, fasting, the idea that fasting was beneficial, actually, is was known has been known for a long time. Is actually has been incorporated in a number of religion. There's uh, long traditions of fasting uh, in many cultures uh, throughout the world. And um, what has happened during the last 50 years is this incredible food abundance because of increased economic status in, in most of the world has been associated with overeating and eating outside of meals and so on. I think maybe we should have to go back to uh, some of the things that our ancestors were doing, eating less, eating only at meals, and exercising. It's a simplistic approach, but it seems to be, you know, for all of the science and your deeper understanding of what's actually happening at a cellular level, the end message often seems to be the same one, and that is just go back to a simple approach, a simple lifestyle. That's probably the first thing that uh, you can do today if you are concerned about, about, about increasing your health span and your longevity, I, I would argue. Do you think the food industry should take its responsibility more seriously? We are surrounded... I mean, when I fast, I notice the advertising more. I notice the television advertising, the, the billboards around us, the newspapers. Wherever you see a commercial for, for a burger or for, for whatever it happens to, it comes, leaps out at me. Clearly it works because you just got to look at the obesity issue in this country and, and further afield. Clearly. I mean, the, and there's no, there's no question of uh, immorality or whatever. The, the role of the food industry and its mission is to sell food. So they, they actually are very good at it. And uh, in some way they share part of the responsibility in that they've been able to identify the trigger point that uh, induce most humans to eat food and to actually eat more than what they need. The other part of the responsibility is, uh, is upon us to actually develop a, a response to this assault of, uh, of advertising and, and temptation and to uh, retake control of our, of our eating. Tell me about your own daily regime in terms of what you eat and, and exercise, I assume. Yeah, so I, it's, uh, I do episodic fasting. Uh, I 
was for a while on this intermittent type of fasting, uh, two times a week. Uh, but I found this uh, quite difficult to maintain. Uh, it's uh, Those of you who have tried, it is a bit hard to get into. Once you are into it, it is actually um, a great way to do it, but it seemed a bit strong. And I'm, uh, I'm a big exerciser, so I think in, it was very difficult to combine a regular exercise with the fasting. So I think it, right now I, I'm exercising a lot, I try to restrict, uh, if I, the two things that I try to restrict the most are carbohydrates and proteins and, uh, and try to have a diet. Um, my diet is more of a sort of a Mediterranean style, style of diet, lots of vegetables, olive oil, and try to decrease uh, meat intake and carbohydrate, especially the, the uh, rapid carbohydrates, uh, rapidly absorbed type of sugars. The, the white breads. Yes, exactly. Although a French baguette is uh, unbeatable. Oh, it's beautiful. We all love it. (laughs) In terms of meats, are there certain meats that you will not eat? I eat mostly fish and I don't eat beef or or lamb anymore. Yes, I uh, actually eat mostly fish, extremely rarely beef. But I try not to have any uh, exclu- complete exclusion. I'm, I would say I'm more a veganish, as, as some people have, have tried to say. A veganish. A veganish, for Got example. <laughs> I love a leg of lamb at Easter. I think this is uh, something that I would not want to miss, but I don't eat lamb the rest of the year. And the same for if I go to have a hamburger, I will have a veggie burger. And uh, so, But again, uh, if I go home, I will have whatever special is on the menu. So this is probably music to the ears of many people, that you don't have to go to the ultimate extreme of being, uh, in your view, uh, 100% vegan or or indeed vegetarian, that you can enjoy food. And I think that's what life is all about to some extent. We have these moments, and especially there's a social implication there as well, that food and mixing with people, family, friends, loved ones, that they are intertwined, aren't they? They're they're absolutely key. And I think... um, there's an old joke in the field that uh, that about calorie restriction that some people have said that uh, it might not make you live forever, but it will certainly feel that way. <laughs> and uh, in some way, the same thing goes about fasting. I think if uh, it makes your life miserable, it prevents you from enjoying uh, a good meal with friends. I think uh, the essence of life actually... M- some of the best things about life revolve around food, friendship. And uh, so I think I try to maintain a balance that is sensible. I think what is is becoming increasingly apparent, certainly to me, is that lifestyles are changing and we don't necessarily have to revolve around three meals a day. The breakfast, lunch, dinner, seven days a week scenario. I think that's, again, a key thing. For example, from time to time, I try to skip a meal because I know this will, I feel better right after it. And I think this is something that I, over the years, I've tried to get a feeling of how well, and how strong I feel. And sometimes uh, if I feel I've been overeating, for example, or something, a bout of exercise uh, has great effects and, and, and fasting has the same type of effects. And so I think the two together, the, the idea would came, you know, from uh, Nietzsche who said that actually what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and uh, is a, a really good example of that uh, these mild stresses, and I'm convinced in the long run, uh, might uh, make you stronger and allow you to remain healthy. You've mentioned exercise a lot. Yes. What kind of exercise do you do? I try to do a combination of, uh, of uh, aerobics, so I, I love bicycling here in Marin County in, uh, 
uh, in California. We have uh, the weather and uh, the environment. I also try to do uh, some uh, strength uh, exercise. Actually, I do rock climbing. So that's a combination of these two and some swimming. This has been fascinating. It's uh, really been a great pleasure to meet you and talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, likewise. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. And my thanks once again to Dr. Eric Verdin. And that's it for this episode. The Llama Podcast is a Right Angles production. You can contact us through our website at llamapodcast.com and you're very welcome to send us your thoughts on the interviews and to suggest topics or people we could interview for future episodes. You can also follow us and leave messages on Facebook and Twitter at Llama Podcast. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Ruud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.